Today we're looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 24. Uh, this is a word of the Lord. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Right. Let me get situated here. Okay. So we have been going through a sermon series on 1 John, and 1 John, the reason we're going through this is because uh, 1 John talks a lot about love and how loving others is really an essential part of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to know Christ, of what it means to walk in fellowship with God. And up until now, we haven't really defined love or described what it looks like in the concrete. And I think that'll actually come, uh, this positive description of love, in about two weeks. But today what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at love from a negative perspective because what the passage tells us today is it tells us what love does not look like, what love is not. And there's a lot to cover, so I'm going to forego uh, uh, the hook of an introduction to draw you in, and I just want to get straight into the passage. Uh, you know, the first thing that this passage shows us is that love is not hateful. And I know that sounds obvious, but I think it's something that we can explore a little bit more. And the example of hate is taken from early on in the Bible in a story in Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. And if uh, you're familiar with them, then you'll know that Cain and Abel, they were the first children born to Adam and Eve into this world that has now been tainted by sin. And in that story, Cain's offering is not regarded by God, while his brother Abel's offering is. And as a result, Cain gets angry and he ends up killing his brother. So it's the first murder recorded in the Bible. He ends up killing his brother Abel in a field. And John uses this story as a negative example of the kind of person we should not be. And then he says in verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, I think in our society, uh, everyone will probably universally agree that murder is an evil crime and therefore deserving of a heavy penalty under the legal system. But Jesus actually takes it a step further in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this. He says, if you are even angry with your brother, or if you insult your brother and call him a fool, 
then you are liable to the same judgment as that of a murderer. Here, John says something pretty similar to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in that he says, you know, if you hate your brother, then you are a murderer, even without executing the act of murder. Now, how can that be? How can John say that hating someone makes you guilty of murder? I mean, haven't we all hated someone before? Are we that bad of a person if deep within our hearts we have hated a person? And I think Jesus' answer, and I think the Bible's answer would say yes. <laughs> but why? Well, why is hate so offensive to God? And why is it considered to be in the same category of murder? And what makes murder so wrong in God's eyes? And we have to answer that question theologically. And Genesis 9 gives us some insight because in that passage, God tells Noah that he will require a reckoning when the blood of man is shed. And that reckoning requires the life of man. And then he says this in chapter 9, verse 6 in Genesis. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Murder is connected to being created in the image of God. All human life is valuable and filled with dignity because all humans are created in God's image. And therefore, to take away the breath of another human being, the very breath that God breathed into that person, is to rob that person of their inherent value and worth and dignity as someone who has been created in God's image. And that's a theological reason why murder is this grave evil. Now, what does hate do? Hate does something similar in that hate robs a person of their inherent worth as God's image bearer as well. Jesus says, when you call your brother a fool, you're liable to the same judgment as someone who murders. Why? Because to insult an image bearer is to rob them of their dignity. James 3.9 makes that similar connection and says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So whether or not you carry out the act of murder, uh, the Bible would say the root of that offense is the same as insulting someone in that you rob someone of their dignity and value as God's image bearer. And you know, there are no clearer examples of this than the kind of racism uh, African-Americans have experienced in this country for hundreds of years. And if you can connect the dots a little bit between the dehumanization of African-American slaves to hate and contempt towards the African-American community to the lynching and killings of countless black bodies, then you can see why Jesus is saying what he did. During the civil rights movement, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., he actually got his theological underpinnings in the pursuit of justice from this theology of the image of God. And there's a, a I think, somewhat well-known sermon that he preached at Ebenezer Baptist Church uh, where he says this. He says, you see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei, as it is expressed in Latin, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from the treble white to the base black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. Uh, now, 
you know, one of the reasons why I love uh, black preachers is they're so good with images and that image of the keyboard uh, is so beautiful. And what Martin Luther King Jr. is basically saying there, and again, the theological impetus of what drove the civil rights movement for him is that all human beings are full of dignity. Men, women, children are full of dignity. Black, white, Asian, Latino, Native American, full of dignity. But that also means that people with whom you disagree with on political issues, social issues, religious issues are full of dignity. That means that intern who maybe works below you or the partner who is uh, leading your firm both have dignity because they're both made in God's image. That means those who are rich and those who are poor, those who live in penthouses on Park Avenue and those who are on the street and homeless all have dignity because all are created in God's image. But let me give you a challenging one. That means the driver who cut you off has dignity. The person who uh, refuses to move out of the way in front of the subway door uh, so you can't get in or you have to kind of stuff yourself to get in, that person has dignity. That customer service representative who can't really help you resolve your problem after being on the phone for two hours, that person has dignity. Why? Because all people are created in God's image. And in those situations, uh, we don't really get to see how a heart of hate can eventually lead to and cause damage to another human being. But we have seen it in history. And we've in particular seen it against the black community. Now, the killing of George Floyd, uh, I think was horrible on so many levels. But, uh, you know, actually, the words that he uttered were part a particularly startling reminder of why murder is so evil. Uh, you know, when he said the words, I can't breathe, he meant it as this uh, physiological statement, he couldn't breathe. But think about the theological meaning uh, of that statement. In that very moment, the breath that God had given to one of his image bearers was being taken away. God had breathed life into this man who was created into his image. And even though this man may not have been perfect, it still does not detract from the fact that he was created in God's image. He had the capacity to represent God, to be in relationship with God, and to reflect the righteousness of God, just as all human beings do. And who is man to unjustly take that very breath away? Who is man to judge the dignity of a human being based on something like racial identity or the color of your skin? Who is man to hate a fellow image bearer, uh, a fellow bearer of the image of God? To hate means to be like Cain. To hate means you abide in death, not life. And John says, let us not be like Cain and abide in death, but let us live in fellowship with God and love one another so that we might abide in life. Love does not hate. Second, uh, the second negative example here tells us that love doesn't ignore those who are in need. So in verse 17, John talks about a very practical situation and says, but if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And this reminds me of what Fred preached a few weeks ago when he looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you are someone who has the means to help a brother in need, and yet you close your heart against him, then John might actually question whether God's love abides in you. Now, there's a passage in John uh, that 
uh, or there's a passage that John seems to be uh, referencing here from Deuteronomy 15. And I want to actually read a chunk of it, a few verses from it. This is uh, from verses uh, 7 to 9. It says this, If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. Now, there's actually more to read there, but I want to at least give you a little bit of that section so that you can hear some of the context in which it was written, because I do think it adds a lot, another layer of insight into what John is saying here. You know, that passage in Deuteronomy, it's a warning to the Israelites not to allow this kind of calculating spirit to close their hearts to one who is poor and to one who is in need. And this command actually takes place in the context of in Deuteronomy. It's actually it's talking about the sabbatical year. And uh, in the sabbatical year, that was a year where all debts would be canceled. Can you imagine that? The sabbatical year would do two things to two different groups of people. On the one hand, it would free people from this great burden of debt from their creditors. On the other hand, it would actually require the creditor to take a financial hit because that meant they wouldn't be paid back for the money that they lent out. So when it comes to opening your heart to the poor, this passage of Deuteronomy is basically warning the Israelites about being calculating in your sacrificial generosity. If you know that the sabbatical year is coming soon, then you know that you might not get your money back that you lend out because uh, of the sabbatical year where all debts are canceled. And you might make this calculation and say, this is not the year I want to lend money out, right? That's, that's the calculating spirit. And that kind of self-centered calculation is not wisdom, but it is selfish. It is lacking in love. And in Deuteronomy, it is sin. Now, I think this might be a common uh, Korean immigrant story of the 70s. So if you are Korean and if your parents immigrated in the 70s, maybe uh, this is a story that will sound familiar to you. But you know, my parents, they came into this country uh, and they only had $200 when they came into this country. And they lived in poverty until they could establish their own small business and kind of uh, generate or create a life for themselves. And I have a sister and she is five years older than me. And the reason why there's this age gap is because when my sister was a tiny baby, my mom saw all these cockroaches crawling around her while she was taking a nap in her crib. And she told my dad, no more children until we have a decent place to live. So I guess that took about five years because five years later, I was born and uh, I grew up in a pretty comfortable home because of that. Now in immigrant communities like that, um, you tend to see, you know, people depend on each other for help. And at that time, uh, you know, my parents, they didn't borrow money from the banks. They had no understanding of how credit worked. And what the community would do is rather they would ask their friends for help. They would ask their friends to borrow money in order to cover a shortfall in uh, rent or to get a business established and started so that they can start making their own money. And of course, the negative side of that is, you know, if people don't pay you back, it, it could potentially mess up a relationship. For the person who couldn't pay back the money, Maybe there would be this sense of shame and embarrassment for the person who didn't get their money back. Maybe there would be this sense of judgment because uh, they're saying, oh, the other person I lent my money to, my friend that I lent my money to, couldn't keep their promise and pay back the money. And a lot of relationships, I think, have probably been ruined because of that. 
my dad, uh, he saw this dynamic and I, I remember he gave me advice a long time ago, uh, probably when I was in like in college or so. And he said this to me, he said, you know, if you ever lend somebody money, just give it to them without the expectation that they will pay you back. Uh, if they pay you back, then great. But if they don't, then you have to be okay with that so that that friendship isn't ruined. And I don't know if he got this from personal experience. I, I don't actually know the details of um, his friendships and what he did. But, you know, when you lend someone money, you should do it because they need your help and you want to see them do well. And I think that advice actually reflects the spirit of what Deuteronomy 15 is talking about and what John is saying in this passage. Love means you aren't being calculating. You're not thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about how you're going to get your money back. But love means your heart is open to the one in need and willing to offer uh, a sacrifice of generosity. And this actually, I think, connects to the story of Cain and Abel as well. As I said before, Cain and Abel, they both offered a sacrifice to God, but Cain's sacrifice wasn't regarded by God. And you have to ask the question, why? What was wrong with Cain's sacrifice? And there's a couple theories on this. Abel gave the firstborn of his flock, whereas Cain brought an offering of fruit. So maybe Cain's offering was inferior because he didn't give God the best of what he had. Maybe Cain lacked gratitude for the blessings that God had given to him, and therefore his sacrifice was done out of compulsion rather than out of this willingness uh, to love and to worship. Maybe Cain felt entitled because of his sacrifice as though offering a sacrifice is what gave him his worth and value rather than being created in the image of God. And that would probably explain why Cain got angry when God had no regard for his sacrifice. Either way, John says, we shouldn't be like Cain as it relates to love, not only in that we should not hate or murder, but we should also not offer a sacrifice with this calculating, self-serving heart. Now, in this series, we've been saying that one of the things that John is doing through this letter is he is trying to give the believers in this community uh, a kind of assurance of their salvation. So it would seem like verses 19 to 20 is meant to give them assurance as well. And I, I know you don't have this on screen, so let me read verses 19 to 20. But John says this. He says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Uh, <clears throat> now, I spent a chunk of time studying these two verses in particular because, to be quite honest, I didn't understand it. Uh, what does it mean that God is greater than our heart, and what does God knowing everything really have to do with our hearts condemning us? And so, you know, I looked at the commentaries, and I looked into the Greek, and my conclusion is this. Uh, I think the English translation is probably wrong and a little bit confusing. So instead of saying, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, uh, I think it should say, we shall know that we are of the truth and persuade our heart before him. Persuade our heart before him, not reassure our heart before him, but persuade our heart before him. What do we persuade our hearts to do in the presence of God? We are persuading our hearts to respond in love to a brother in need. Uh, one person that I read on this passage, he says this, A base thought arises in the heart of a Christian that condemns a sacrifice demanded as unnecessary and suggests that it can be avoided and that love can be maintained apart from a definite surrender of life or goods. In other words, when a demand for love confronts us, the human heart will try to think of reasons for why our sacrificial uh, act of generosity or love is not really that necessary. 
uh, we might say something like this. Uh, well, this person isn't really in need. There are people in other parts of the world who have much greater needs. Or we might say, I don't want to make this person dependent upon me. Money changes relationships, and I'd rather protect the relationship. So uh, I don't think it's a good idea to, to give. Or if I lend this person money, what are the chances that this person is going to be able to pay me back again? You see, that's, that's the kind of thing that the human heart uh, thinks about. And therefore, I think what John is saying is this. We have to fight against this impulse, and we actually have to engage in the practice of persuading our hearts, but not to ourselves, but actually in the very presence of God, to make a sacrifice of love. Uh, we can't cheapen love and say, oh, well, let's, let's just make it a sentiment. My positive feelings are towards you. But no, it's much more concrete than that. That real love requires actual sacrifice, actual giving up something of ourselves, which means actual pain on our behalf in order to fill the needs of others and to express love towards them. Now, when John says God is greater than our heart, he is saying that God does not share in our struggle uh, in that kind of calculating spirit, because God's generosity is not calculating and is not self-serving. God's generosity is far greater than ours. His compassion to th towards those in need is much greater than ours. And therefore, as we walk in the light and come to know the character of God, we should know the kind of love, generosity, and compassion God has for those in need and love others with a similar open heart. This is why I think verse 16 is probably the key. In verse 16, John writes, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What is love? Look no further than the sacrificial death of Jesus to know what love is. Jesus gave the ultimate offering in sacrifice when he offered himself on the altar of the cross. He saw that we were like that brother in need and he gave us more than we needed so that we would be full. In one sense, there is a debt that was created because of our sin, but Jesus pays that debt on our behalf for us and he brings us this spiritual sabbatical year where all those debts are canceled. Now, if you know that uh, you are someone who was in need, and if you know that Jesus filled that need by laying down his life for you, John would say, how can you close your heart then to somebody who's in need? How can you refuse to offer a sacrifice of love? If you know the love of Jesus, and if you are abiding in his love, then you should be able to love one another as Jesus commanded. And you see, when we demonstrate that kind of love, not only will we have a greater assurance before God or greater confidence before God, but God, uh, but John also says uh, we'll have a better prayer life. Um, I won't get into that now. I won't explain that now, but just chew on that a little bit, how uh, living a life of love actually can improve our life of prayer. Uh, but let me just end with a challenge and say this. Uh, you know, I know not many of us are walking along the streets of New York anymore, and a lot of us are kind of stuck at home. So I guess the direct application is to apply this to uh, the people in our homes. But uh, if you can remember the time where we did walk in New York, and you know, even this morning, a few of us were in New York, and there's so many people that sometimes it's just kind of 
easy to forget that every single person that you encounter is kind of, you know, is a human, is an image bearer of God. And uh, it's easy in our hearts and our minds to see people as obstacles, to objectify people, to dehumanize people, to insult people within our hearts. Um, and especially in crowded cities like New York City, uh, where people tend to get in our way, uh, it's very easy to do that. Um, but, you know, I guess that struck me this morning as I was walking and just looking at people, um, because this passage was, you know, in my mind and in my heart. Uh, I just kept thinking, wow, that's somebody created in the image of God, just a random person on the street. And of course, in New York, around Times Square, there's a lot of uh, homeless people in that area as well. I was thinking that person is somebody who's created in the image of God, and therefore that person's full of dignity and value and worth as God's image bearer. Um, I think <clears throat> that's a theological truth that we need more and more, especially as uh, you know, people get more polarizing and people uh, have increased hate for uh, one another and other groups and things of that sort. Uh, but the one group of people who should be different is the church. And the reason is not because people in the church are uh, morally better um, inherently in and of themselves, but we have uh, the very resource we need, uh, theological resources, but most importantly, the experiential resources in that we know Jesus Christ and his love. Uh, we know, friends, that he laid his that life down for us. Um, I hope we know. Maybe we, our awareness is not as great as it ought to be. I hope we know that we, are, we were people in need because of our sin. Um, we needed this great debt to be forgiven. Uh, we needed to be full of life. We needed to be full of joy. We need to be connected to the very vine, uh, organically connected to this vine. And because we are, and the Holy Spirit seals that upon our hearts, uh, we have access to be able to love as Jesus loved us. And I don't think we can buy into um, maybe other narratives that say it's enough to just give sentiment. Uh, I think uh, God expects something concrete, something sacrificial, something that valuable that we have to give up uh, for the sake of the good of others. Let's pray together.